Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Politics Band Podcast. It's been kind of a long week of nonsense with the Democrats in Washington. There's been a whole lot of things going on, but I've got one particular topic that I want to discuss with you today, a couple key articles that I wanted to go over with you today, and they're all dealing specifically with wealth accumulation and wealth generation in America. I really, really feel like this is an important topic because as we get closer to the 2020 campaign, you're going to see the concept of income inequality and wealth generation, I think going to be a centerpiece of the Democrats 2020 campaign for president and just an overall, it's an overall area. I think that we're going to see some of the largest amounts of insanity that we have seen potentially ever from the progressive left. And so I'm just going to jump right into it today. The reason why I feel like this is so crucial is because at the very center of this debate over the notion of income inequality and wealth distribution, and in the case of the federal government, the redistribution of wealth, at the center core of all of this is property rights. The ability to accumulate and maintain property in the United States of America, it's, it is probably the single most important right that we possess as Americans, really amongst everything else. I know that many of you who listen to me are strong advocates of the Second Amendment, and certainly you all believe in the inherent right of, to the freedom of expression. I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that without the ability to own and accumulate property, all of the other rights that we enjoy, they all fall by the wayside. You, you cannot have you realistically cannot have anything else without the ability to own and to accumulate property as a citizen in the United States. And make no mistake, money and wealth is all property. We are all essentially endowed with the unalienable right to own and control our own property. That also includes your labor. Because after all, in the case of income, that's exactly what it is. You are exchanging your labor for currency in the form of income. You are exchanging income for assets, stocks, bonds, precious metals, real estate. These are all examples of property. And what is essentially taking place is this slow, encroaching attempt by the progressive left to completely strip property rights from the American society and the American culture as we know it. More specifically, they want to do it, of course, from the wealthy. And they want to do it so that they can redistribute that money to the people that they feel are most deserving. And of course, the reason why they believe they're most deserving is because they're the ones that the progressive left want their vote desperately. Essentially, Democrats are using the tax code and the redistribution capability of the federal government to take money out of the hands of people who have earned it and distribute it to those who have not in the effort to buy their votes. That is probably the most direct and simple way I can explain what the motivations are. Now, you're going to see a race to the bottom with 2020. It's already starting. And I wanted today to address a Bloomberg.com opinion piece that was written by somebody named Noah Smith. This was from January 31st, 2019. The headline, A Wealth Tax is Better Than Some of the Alternatives. I'm really kind of curious what those alternatives are because as far as I'm concerned, this is a terrible idea. The subtitle is, It Would Raise More Money Than Higher Rates on Incomes, but an inheritance tax would be preferable. Oh, really? You know, quite frankly, I would prefer no taxes to an, to a, uh, to an alternative of an inheritance tax. But you're going to see, I'm going to set this up real quick for you. You're going to see a particular theme start to play out. You're going to see a structure to all of these different suggestive legislations. You're going to see kind of a common mold no matter whether it's a wealth tax, an inheritance tax, 
a top marginal tax, you're going to see essentially this construction where it impacts a very small amount of Americans. They, through some formulation of arguments and facts, and I use facts with a quote, the claim is going to be made that the people who have this money either A, didn't earn it, or B, they earned it, but they earned it with the help of society, you know, my roads, that kind of thing, that you went to public school and got public education, that you utilized public roads in the process, that you were protected by publicly funded police, that your buildings may or may not have been saved or protected by a publicly funded fire department. The notion is that all of these social services, which we pay for as taxpayers, mind you, that you benefited from all of these services and therefore a portion of the money that you earned, even though you pay taxes on earned income, a portion of the money that you earned was directly due to the public and the people's involvement and their money in supporting your business. It's exactly the you didn't build that mentality that President Obama made so famous in his speech where he said exactly that, that you didn't build that. Somebody else helped you build that. The notion that none of us actually succeed because of our own efforts, that we always have help. And as a result, the people, some nameless, faceless bureaucrats and some nameless, faceless Americans who weren't there on the nights where you worked for nothing, weren't there during the times of struggle, but are there when you succeed, they are entitled to a portion of your earnings simply because, well, you couldn't possibly have done it on your own. This is the formula, no matter what the plan is, no matter who's proposing it, this is what you're going to hear. And I feel like this is an important exercise to walk through because you're going to hear this a lot. And I want to help you all, first of all, in understanding exactly what role property plays with respect to the Constitution and with respect to your rights as an American citizen, but to help you dismantle these plans when you hear about them from the people that you know. Because make no mistake, as this opinion piece clearly articulates, the vast majority of the American people do not care about the rights of the wealthy to maintain and own their own property. Why? Because there's so few of them from a numbers perspective that they didn't earn their wealth. The notion that, well, even in the case of inheritance, as we'll get into this, that people are inheriting cash that they didn't quote unquote earn, even though somebody earned that money and someone paid taxes on it. It is, it is an, an incredible perversion of the American culture and the American spirit. This is not, not the basis from which this country was founded. But unfortunately, it was a real fear of the founders of the American Constitution with the realization that if people realized they could vote themselves the contents of the treasury, there would be no end to it. It would destroy this nation if the American people could rob and pillage and steal from the wealthy simply because they were so. Now, I'm not a special pleader for the rich within America. I would like to be wealthy someday. I would like to think that I have the capacity to earn a lot of money in my lifetime and to build a foundation for my family. And yes, even leave that wealth for my children so that they can then have a better life for themselves and their children. I would like to do that someday. But I'm not a special pleader for anybody. And I'm not here to tell you that every single dollar earned by every wealthy individual was earned legitimately. But I am here to tell you that the vast majority of it was. And it, either way, it doesn't matter because as Americans, we all have the same equal rights, including the ability to earn, accumulate, and do with what we want with our property. No one has a right to dictate how someone else uses their property. It's just a simple fact. You earned your money. You have the right to decide how it's spent 
or whether or not it's spent. Let's get into this article because I'm definitely fired up about this. It's infuriating because it is a it is a violation of the highest order. It is taxation without representation in in every conceivable manner. Again, this is a Bloomberg opinion written by Noah Smith. And let's get into this article. Close on the heels of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's proposal to tax a top income at 70%, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who uh, is a Native American, uh, won 1,024th, in case you didn't know, has released her own big idea, which is a tax of 2% a year on all wealth above $50 million, rising to 3% for those fortunes of more than $1 billion. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the specifics of the proposal, but you got to understand that we already have a problem because people don't understand that the wealth that is owned by a lot of people in the case of very wealthy Americans is usually some form of an asset. They don't have the cash just laying around and they just sort of take some of that cash off the top and pay taxes with it. These are assets. This is property. These are stocks. These are the kinds of things that go towards your net worth. So you can imagine that if you have a 401k, for example, that you've been putting 15% a year in since you were 25 years old, you're now 60 or 65 years old, you got a $500,000 house, you, you got a net worth of over a million dollars. You probably have a 401k that's around three to 400,000. You're a millionaire on paper. But that doesn't mean that you have a million dollars in cash. It doesn't mean that you've got money just laying around all over the place that you could just go ahead and give to the federal government. So this notion of wealth above $50 million, I mean, this is, this is a net worth situation. Now, ironically, of course, this is high enough that uh, Elizabeth Warren, who has a net worth of over $10 million, I might add, uh, you know, she's not going to be impacted by this. So, of course, she's all for it. The proposal, which would affect about 75,000 of the country's wealthiest people, also comes with a set of measures designed to reduce avoidance and evasion. Oh, yeah, because, you know, tax avoidance and tax evasion are certainly not going to be avoided in this case. That's always the problem here. And I I just want to take a step back for a moment and acknowledge this. The one big problem when it comes to taxes, Democrats don't understand that taxation does not happen in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is if you tax somebody at 20%, you get 20% of their revenue. This is the big misconception. And of course, when he talks about the occasional cortex's own uh, core audience, which doesn't even know what a marginal tax rate is, that's how ignorant these people are. That's why when you tax somebody at 100%, well, let me back up. That's why the average effective rate of taxation on the wealthiest people in America has really only been about 30%. In fact, I actually think that that might be the effective rate across the board when you take into account all taxes that have been uh, brought in since the 16th Amendment was passed. 30%. And that's even when we had a top marginal rate of 90% on our wealthiest people. So you could tax people at 100% and they're still going to find a way to only pay somewhere around, on average, 30% of their revenue. And of course, they do that through various different methods of deductions, avoidance, and evasion. The higher the marginal tax rate, the greater the incentive to break the law and or find ways around giving up your money. That's why Reaganomics works. That's why when you tax people less, you tend to get more revenue. It's not because there's some kind of weird gimmicky magic. It's because as the tax rate comes down, human nature kicks in. That's the, that's the factor is you've got human nature that is between the government and the money. So as the tax rates come down, the incentive to break the law comes down as well to the point where it's almost more worthwhile to just cut a check as opposed to paying an army of tax attorneys or risking breaking the law to keep your money. At some point, you're just like, just give them the, give them the money. So that's why there's a point, of course, there's a, you know, it's a law of diminishing returns in the opposite direction. 
but it's but as you back off the tax, that's that's why right now we're seeing record tax receipts at the federal level, even as corporate rates are cut, even as internationally earned profits are cut in terms of taxation, because now we got money flowing right back into the United States. This is not hard, ladies and gentlemen. When you think about it from a perspective of human nature and the the desire that people have to keep what is theirs, it all makes sense. Let's continue. The motivation for taxing wealthy directly undoubtedly comes from the observation that the most prosperous Americans own a larger share than they used to. Oh, really? And of course, they show this fancy chart for the uh, top point. 0.01% showing that, uh, what, since 1975, they had about 2.2% of all the U.S. wealth. And of course, now they're up to 11.2%. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons that this is this has taken place. And I'm not going to bore everybody here, but you need to understand that essentially the relationship is like this. The wealthy get more wealthy. The rich get richer because they put their dollars into assets. Whereas the poorest Americans are living paycheck to paycheck with fiat money that was worth less and less every single year. I cannot underscore this part enough. The reason why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is not because there's some kind of a grand conspiracy to steal money from the poor, which they don't have, and give it to the wealthy who actually earned it. It's because of inflation. It's because the Federal Reserve through its magical creation process of literally making money out of nothing, inflate the currency's value and essentially make it worth less and less and less every single year. So how do you fix that? Well, let me think. If I'm a wealthy individual, I know a thing or two about making money. So I take that dollar and I essentially freeze its value at worst, or at best, I actually make it worth more by putting it into an asset. So I buy stocks, I buy bonds, I have high interest uh, savings accounts, I buy real estate, I invest in businesses as a venture capitalist, I make that dollar worth more at best, and at worst, I lock the value in so that when I take that dollar out in 10 or 15 years, it's actually worth more than when when I paid it in, or at the very least, the worth of that dollar is frozen in time. That's why they talk about the value of gold, how, you know, uh, I don't know what they say, maybe a hundred years ago, an ounce of gold would buy you a a suit. I think they, I can't remember what the comparison was. And of course, you know, a really nice suit and and whatnot. And of course it's, it'll do that for you today. See the, the value of gold is not that gold is more valuable. It's that the dollar is actually less valuable. The point in time when an ounce of gold was worth $20, this, that same gold has this, will, will really buy you the same amount of stuff, but that's the dollar that's worth less. I just, I, I cannot underscore that point enough. It's inflation that makes the, richer, the rich richer and the poor poor. That's what widens the chasm. So back to the opinion piece, it says Warren's plan to tax some portion of this wealth has much to recommend it. Oh, it does. Even though the number of people affected would be smaller than the crowd at some college football games, the revenue raised from the tax would be substantial. You see how this is how it's framed. Oh, well, the number of people that are impacted are relatively small. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a progressive Democrat, the bestowing of constitutional rights, in this case, the right to actually earn and control your own property is entirely dependent upon the size of your representation. So since the amount of people who are actually considered wealthy or maybe super wealthy in the United States could fit inside of a football field, well, you know, we just don't, we're just not going to honor your constitutional rights because you, uh, you don't actually have a group representation in any sizable amount that would amount to anything. We have, you know, 300 million people out here who don't have this money. And so, yeah, whatever. We're just going to let that go. It's only 75,000 people. You know, what's the big deal? They don't get rights. It's sickening. So then this, uh, this individual, so Noah Smith, uh, you know, says all these uh, blah, 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 you know, economists. Oh, (laughs) 
Emmanuel uh, Sayez and Gabriel Zuckman, who study inequality. God, what a depressing, what a depressing career to study inequality. You know how you study inequality? You take two people and stand them next to each other. That's pretty much it. They estimate that Warren's plan would raise about $275 billion a year, almost four times as much as the optimistic estimates for Arcasio-Cortez's income tax. $275 billion a year that the federal government would take out of the economy simply by taxing the wealth of the richest Americans over $50 million. So you got to imagine every single year as somebody who has a net worth, because that's what we're talking about, of over $50 million, or in the case of a billion dollars, is going to see 2 to 3% of your estate, of your total net worth, disappear every single year that you have it for doing nothing. That's, it's unbelievable to be taxed for doing nothing. For, it's, it's almost like the, essentially the Obamacare mandate where your absence in the economy, in the case of not owning a healthcare plan, is considered to be participation and therefore is regulated by the Commerce Clause. So now we're going to tax people, even if you don't spend anything, even if you don't make anything, we're going we're gonna to tax your net worth even if it just sits there. It's insanity. Even if you don't believe that reducing inequality is a worthy goal in and of itself, it's not. It's not a worthy goal. It's like trying to dim the sun. It's, it's not a worthy goal. But anyway, I digress. That's a decent amount of money. Oh, a decent amount? Ladies and gentlemen, would you consider $275 billion a year? What, as, as this author points out, which is a little over 8% of the annual federal budget that's taken in, would you consider that to be a decent amount of money? I consider that to be a, you have to excuse me, but a shitload of money. $275 billion is more money than a human being could spend in a lifetime if you tried. But Noah Smith continues. He says, even if you don't believe that reducing inequality is a worthy goal in and of itself, that's a decent amount of money. An 8.1% increase in federal revenues not enough to pay for universal health care, but more than enough to pay for a major expansion in anti-poverty programs. Yes, because, of course, the 25 to $30 trillion that we have spent since the beginning of the war on poverty, that's not enough. No, no, no. We need, to, we need to crank it up a little bit more. You want to talk about the definition of insanity. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you're actually aware of this, but this is a realistic statistic. We've spent at least $25 trillion since the war on poverty was officially declared, and the poverty rate has historically stayed at about 5%. It has not budged. Poverty alone is not determined exclusively by your inability to earn money. And as you'll find out, we have anti-poverty programs all over the place, and it hasn't made a dent. But he says, of course, but it's more than enough money to pay for a major expansion in anti-poverty programs and a nationwide smart grid for clean energy with plenty left over for housing subsidies to help relieve the country's rent crisis. And I believe what this author is, of course, talking about, because all these authors either live in San Francisco or New York City, is they're talking about the rent seeking that takes place. So essentially this is what happens. As a landlord, you have this you have this subsidized uh, housing essentially where and I'm going to kind of I'm 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 kind of ad living this because I don't have the specifics in front of me, but essentially what you have are rent subsidies that are paid to people who don't earn a certain amount of income and let's just say that the rent subsidies are $300 a month. Okay. So as a landlord, you know that $300 a month is automatically built into the price. So what do you do when you have rent? You build that into the price. So an $800 a month location will now be priced at $1,100 a month, but actually only costs the individual $800 a month. Does that make sense? Now, if you don't receive the rent subsidy, then you pay the full $1,100 a month. So that's what causes this rent crisis. You have an artificially inflated rental market because the federal government is dumping cash into that market. It's, this is not hard. This is not hard to understand at all. 
Oh boy. All right. Let's, let's keep going. I know this is, I know this is difficult ladies and gentlemen, but it is, it is important to analyze these pieces because this is going to be a major cornerstone. You are going to see candidate after candidate falling over themselves. They're going to tax a hundred percent of your income. They're going to tax 150% of your income. By the time we're done, you're going to be taxed on money that you haven't even earned yet. You're going to be taxed on your potential to earn income. Just, just wait. Okay. You heard it here first. Additionally, wealth taxes will probably seem fairer to many people than income taxes. Oh, really? Wealth taxes will probably seem fairer to many people than income taxes. Instead of taxing only future income, they tax the accumulated income of the past. So, Instead of taxing future income once, you're going to tax wealth, which already, of course, paid income taxes and or capital gains taxes and or property taxes. And then you're going to do a wealth tax on top of that. So it's better. It seems more fair to tax people twice than it is to tax people once. Does that make any sense to you people? Because it doesn't make sense to me. In other words, the existing rich can't avoid the taxes by being grandfathered in. Oh, so what they're trying to say is, of course, through the inheritance process that you avoid the paying the income tax, even though income tax was already paid when somebody earned that money. Additionally, a substantial fraction of the wealthiest Americans inherited their money instead of creating a business or earning a high salary. Americans are unlikely to shed a tear for heirs and heiresses forced to give up a larger slice of their unearned fortunes. You see, here we go. We are going to ignore your unalienable rights to own and accumulate property because you inherited it from a family member. So you didn't earn that. You see, you didn't earn that. But of course, as we'll discover later on, as this article continues, Democrats cry endlessly about the inequality from CEOs who earn too much money. So even in the instances where someone is earning a direct income, they complain that that is also a form of inequality and that CEOs have no business earning that level of income. So even in the, so this is, this argument is, is complete BS. This notion that because somebody didn't earn that money themselves, that somehow they are forfeit of their ability to assume property that was actually legally left to them by their own family members. But even in the cases where somebody actually did directly earn that income, Democrats still complain about this. So this argument to me is completely hollow. This is nothing more than playing on the ignorance of the reader, not understanding that the full context of this is Democrats are not supportive of any wealthy person earning any substantial amount of money, regardless of whether it's inherited or the or if it's earned through an income or if it's obtained through capital gains, they don't support any of it. But they're trying to they're trying to appeal to the reader by saying, "Well, many Americans aren't likely to care because they didn't earn the money." Ladies and gentlemen, your fundamental God-given human rights do not rest on whether or not the American people believe that you earned the property that you have. It is not up to the opinion of the American people as to whether or not you earned that money. Because, of course, we all know if we take this to its logical conclusion that the Democrats will claim that you didn't earn it no matter what, that you didn't earn it because people use public roads, you went to public education, maybe you went to a state-funded university college. There are all these elements that they'll build in place to show that the public actually is responsible for your success, not you, and therefore you don't get to keep anything. So that's why it's very important to understand that you can't, you have got to take these arguments to their logical conclusions, their extreme conclusions, because that's ultimately where this is going to go. I understand that there is a fallacy for the slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen. We have seen it time and time again where we call out the slippery slope. We are told that we are being paranoid, that we are simply being outrageously, uh, you know, we're just being essentially exaggerating 
And then what happens? The exact thing that conservatives say will happen actually comes to pass, but it's too late by then. Oh my goodness. This is, I know this is tough, but let's keep going. So Americans are unlikely to shed a tear for heirs and heiresses forced to give up a larger slice of their unearned fortunes. Even rich people themselves might be relieved not to have to worry as much about spoiled heirs. And this is great. Are you ready for this? Research shows that wealthy individuals who give most of their money away tend to be happier. Have you not heard? I, this, this makes my skin crawl. Number one, oh, you don't have to worry about those spoiled heirs taking possession of your money because, well, number one, you'll be dead. But secondly, research shows that wealthy people are most happy or happier when they give away their money. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we're not only going to absolve you of the terrible burden of worrying about your heirs or heiresses being spoiled brats, but you're going to feel so much better knowing that you gave your money away to the federal government. Oh my God. The arrogance of these people is astounding. It makes me sick. The notion that, oh, they're doing, they're doing you a favor, ladies and gentlemen, by absolving you of your guilt and your worry, and you're going to be so much happier giving your money away. That's not, up to the, that's not up to the government. That's not up to the American people. That's up to you as the property owner. If you don't want to give your money away, you don't have to. Finally, many Americans already pay wealth taxes in the form of property taxes on their home. Did you know that your property taxes are actually wealth taxes? Since the affluent tend to hold more wealth in stocks rather than real estate, taxing those assets only seems to be fair. For all of these reasons, wealth taxes are likely to be a political hit. Polls already show strong support for taxes on the prosperous and wealth taxes seem likely to be even more popular, if anything. Of course they're popular. Are you kidding me? The, um, the, the American people that are alive today, I'm, I'm sorry, but when it comes to understanding property rights, they're idiots. They don't have a clue. Of course they're going to be in support of it. Hey, uh, Uncle Sam shows up at your door and says, hey, would you like a free $50,000? Just don't ask where it came from. Sure. You know, if you, do you guys ever see the movie? Um, I think it was called The Box, and the the and I I'm going to ruin the premise. So, spoiler alert here. It's where a, a, this guy comes with this this box with the red button, and tells a person across the the table that if you push this red button, you're going to get a million dollars, but someone that you don't know will die, and the woman just slaps that button instantly. That's how people in America are today. If you went to them, I would love to do that experiment. Like I would, I would love to do that. Sit that box down in front of somebody and they would just be like, boom, they'd hit that sucker without even a moment's hesitation, a million dollars and someone that you don't know will die. Oh yeah. In a heartbeat, baby. So many people would do that. They don't care about where the money comes from. They don't care whether the other person earned it or not. All they, Oh, they're just an evil, wealthy person. Oh, don't worry. They have plenty left over. That's not how this works. Your rights are not determined upon how much money you have. Your rights are not determined upon whether or not you make a living wage. Your rights are your rights regardless of your net worth. They are unalienable. This is what is inherently flawed with our culture today is that people make decisions about whether or not they believe someone's rights should be honored or not under the basis of things like whether or not they're wealthy. Oh, you have too much money, so we need to take it from you. You don't get to have property rights anymore because you obviously have made enough. It's disgusting. It makes me sick. So, of course, trying to make the case well, look, you already pay a wealth tax. You pay property taxes. No, you don't pay a wealth tax. You pay property taxes. That's not a tax on your net worth. That's a tax on the estimated value of your home. Completely different. Completely different. 
So what about economic harms? And of course, now we're actually going to get into the good one here. Even more than top bracket income taxes, wealth taxes seem unlikely to substantially discourage entrepreneurship or risk risk taking. Of course, they you know they talk to Paul Krugman. Oh my gosh, Paul Krugman! You got to be kidding me! You talk about an economic illiterate. Wealth taxes could even increase the nation's productivity. Now, this is of particular importance and one of the major focuses of this. I know, I know, this has been a long, long run so far in this podcast, but please stick with me. Many wealthy people don't invest their fortunes particularly efficiently, earning mediocre returns on their assets. Now, this is hilarious. Now, I know you can't see this because you're not looking at the article. But here where the author says, many wealthy people don't invest their fortunes particularly efficiently. So now your rights, of course, your rights to maintain ownership of your wealth and property are dependent entirely on whether or not you have invested your fortunes efficiently. Now, this is funny. There's a link on the word efficiently, and it takes you to another article written by the same author. It's titled, now remember the premise, wealthy people are not efficiently investing their money. They're putting it into mediocre assets. This is the title. How the top 1% keep getting richer. Well, that's weird. Well, let's look at the subhead. Let's look at the subheading. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll back up the premise of the author. No, the, the wealthiest invest less in housing and more in stocks, generating higher returns. The article's title is about how wealthy people are investing in stocks and making more money. And yet the author links this as evidence that wealthy people don't actually, they don't invest their money efficiently. And then the article says how they're actually being more efficient in their investments. You want to talk about an illiterate? Good grief. I hope hope Bloomberg didn't pay this guy for this opinion piece. So the author's uh, evidence that uh, the wealthy don't uh, efficiently invest their money is uh, an article saying that they actually efficiently invest their money claiming that they earning mediocre returns on their assets. And yet at the very beginning of this article, what was the argument that the rich are getting richer? So excuse me very much. How do you simultaneously hold the position that wealthy, that many wealthy people don't invest their money particularly efficiently and make mediocre returns on their assets and then turn around and have the rich getting richer and efficiently more so as your evidence. I mean, if I would not take, I would not take advice on how to run a lemonade stand from this guy. Did this guy used to work for the the Huffington Post, the Huffington Post and Buzzfeed? If not, maybe Bloomberg needs to cut their entire opinion staff too. So he goes on to cite all these stupid economists and it says that they've suggested that wealth taxation could help to liberate this unproductive capital for more productive uses. In fact, one uh, economist suggests that using the tax to offset cuts. And, oh, so basically, they go in to justify using the tax as a essentially an offset to corporate tax rates, and that would be more efficiently. All right. Well, let me tell you, I got, I got, a, I got a real present for you. Let's talk about some of the more efficient ways that the federal government can spend your tax money, ladies and gentlemen. And this is an oldie but goodie. I'm going back to an article. This is from 2009 at Heritage.org called the 50 examples of government waste. Let's let's think let think about your own think about your own money. Think about all the things that you spend money on. You spend money on your on your kids, on cars, on a home, your 401k, your investments, cash for savings, all the stuff. Think about all the quote unquote inefficient ways that you you that you spend your money, okay? So here's some highlights. The federal government made at least $72 billion with a B as in boy in improper payments in 2008, just 2008, 78 or $72 billion in improper payments. Washington spends $92 billion on corporate welfare, excluding TARP. Now, remember, this is 2009 versus $71 billion on Homeland Security. We spend more on corporate welfare that we did on Homeland Security in 2009 gets better. Washington spends $25 billion annually maintaining unused or vacant federal properties. 
Government auditors spent the past five years examining all federal programs and found 22% of them costing taxpayers a total of $123 billion annually to fail, fail to show any positive impact on the populations they serve. 22% of federal programs that showed zero positive impact on the communities that they serve to the tune of $123 billion. I got more. Congressional Budget Office published a budget option series identifying more than $100 billion in potential spending cuts. Could have pension, you know, could could be anything, but oh my gosh, where's some good one? Oh, this is a great one. Uh, number seven, Washington will spend $2.6 million training Chinese prostitutes to drink more responsibly on the job. $2.6 million. More money than some American citizens will earn in a lifetime so that we can change that we could train Chinese prostitutes so that they, they, they drink more responsibly on the job, not to stop drinking on the job, just be more responsible. The government accountability office audit classified nearly half. That's 50% of government credit cards, all charges. I'm sorry on government credit cards as improper, fraudulent, or embezzled examples of taxpayer funded purchases included gambling, mortgage payments, liquor, lingerie, iPods. This is 2009 Xboxes, jewelry, internet dating services, and Hawaiian vacations. And one extraordinary example, this is great. The postal service, you know, that the same postal service that's like, that's completely bankrupt and upside down because they're getting creamed by FedEx and UPS spent $13,500 on one dinner at a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, including, quote, over 200 appetizers and over $3,000 of alcohol, including more than 40 bottles of wine costing more than $50 each and brand name liquor such as Cavassier, Belvedere, and Johnny Walker Gold. The 81 guests consumed an average of $167 worth of food and drink apiece. Your efficient spending federal government, ladies and gentlemen. Federal agencies are delinquent on nearly 20% of employee travel charge cards, costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars annually in interest and fees. They're late. They can't, we can't pay our own bills. The Securities and Exchange Commission spent $3.9 million rearranging desks and offices at its Washington, D.C. headquarters. And this is the last one I will leave you with. There are 50 of these. So you need to go through these. You really need to see these for yourself if you have not. The Pentagon recently spent $998,000 shipping two 19-cent washers from South Carolina to Texas, and then another $293,000 sending an 89-cent washer from South Carolina to Florida. I mean, these are filled, filled with them. Healthcare fraud estimated to cost taxpayers more than $60 billion every year. The GAO found that 95 Pentagon weapon systems suffered from a combined $295 billion in cost overruns. I mean, it goes on and on. More than $13 billion in Iraq aid has been classified as wasted or stolen. Another $7.8 billion cannot be accounted for. Washington spent $3 billion re-sanding beaches, even as the new sand washes back into the ocean. I think I actually remember that story. This is the efficient spending of the federal government that Mr. Noah Smith believes would be absolutely more paramount and preferable than allowing wealthy people to inefficiently invest their money, even though they're actually earning more of it efficiently. Do you see, I mean, is it starting to become clear is the, the arguments and, and, and what their abject insanity that these people actually believe that the government should be the most essentially most powerful decider of how you should spend, keep, and keep your money. In fact, they actually call it 
they call it um, wealth hoarding now. We used to call it saving, and we actually used to encourage people to do it. Now it's actually called hoarding. You're hoarding your wealth. Because hoarding, of course, has a negative connotation. We think of people who are hoarding like massive amounts of newspapers and you know feces all over their home. And well, you're you're hoarding your wealth. You need to let that go. Oh my gosh. There's more, there's more to this article. It's 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 asinine. So, but I want to I want to finish off the podcast by going through an article for the Foundation for Economic Education at FEE.org. And this is uh, an article entitled The Primacy of Property Rights and the American Founding. Private ownership of property provides real power and instills self-reliance and self-governance. This is an excellent article. I highly encourage you to read all of it, but I'm going to go through just a little bit of it because I, I, the, the thing that I want to convey the most to everybody listening to this podcast is your private property rights is the first and last line of defense of individual liberty in this nation, which is why the threat of socialism is so dangerous. If the federal government has the ability to nationalize the means of production and give it to the public, everything is over. There, was, there will no longer be any incentive for innovation, creation, because that's essentially what drives all of us to do the things that we do to obtain wealth in some capacity in order to improve our lives, improve the lives of our family and to ultimately pass that on to the next generation. Now, of course, wealth accumulation is not the paramount motivation in the lives of every American, nor should it be necessarily, nor was it seen to be the, as the most important thing in life with the founders of the American Constitution. But property rights in and of itself is seen as one of the single largest pillars in liberty in America. So let's go through this article and see what this author has to say. I think that this will become a little bit more clear as as time goes on, if it's something that you're not very familiar with. Just want to back up here and find my spot. A reading of the important founding documents, however, shows clearly that the founders held property rights to be as important as other human rights. In fact, at times they insisted that the right to acquire and possess private property was, in some ways, the most important of individual rights. Only one who ignores the history of the founding period could deny that the men of that era held the right to private property in high esteem. Indeed, it could be said that the central question of principle that animated the movements that led to the independence and the framing of the Constitution concerned property rights. For it was the threat to property rights in the form of taxation without representation that initiated the crisis that led eventually to independence. That's key. You have to understand that from the very beginning of the framing of the Constitution, of the founding of the country through the Declaration of Independence, property rights was at the center because it was the threat to property rights in the form of taxation without representation that have ultimately led to independence. The author says, moreover, it was largely the undermining of property rights by state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation that prompted the framing of a new national constitution that would protect the individual right to property against infringement by a national and state government power. The state abuses of power during the 1780s included the cancellation of private debts, either directly or indirectly. Think about college student loan debt, ladies and gentlemen. The cancellation of debts, even if it's owed by the people, that's still tax money. Uh, Either directly or indirectly, especially through deliberately inflationary policies and the emission of worthless paper money as legal tender. That's what's taking place today. Essentially, we are canceling debts by inflating the currency. 
the same thing took place in the 1780s. So insofar as the founders made any distinction between property rights and other individual rights, they insisted that property rights were at least as important as personal rights. In Federalist 54, James Madison stated that the government is instituted no less for the protection of the property than of the persons of individuals. So he's showing them as being equal. As Madison later elaborated, property rights are as important as personal rights because the two are intimately connected. The right to labor and acquire property is itself an important personal right and entitled to government protection and the property acquired through the exercise of this personal right by, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my spot here. <laughs> I'm an amateur, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so this is what essentially was put into the address at the Virginia convention. It is sufficiently obvious that persons and property are the two great subjects on which governments are to act and that the rights of persons and the rights of property are the objects for the protection of which government was instituted. These rights cannot well be separated. The personal right to acquire property, which is a natural right, gives to property when acquired a right to protection as a social right. So the author says, if property rights were understood to be as important as other rights, how are we to account for the failure of the Declaration of Independence to mention the word and its conspicuous substitution of the phrase pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the original draftings of the Declaration of Independence were life, liberty, and the ownership of property, essentially, or life, liberty, and property. Now, there was, my understanding, one of the major reasons why this was changed is there was, of course, still slavery taking place in the United States, and the concern was that this could help actually, actually help aid that process. And so it was later stricken from the Declaration of Independence. Uh, does this not suggest at least subordination of property rights to other rights? Indeed, some contemporary scholars have argued that the language of the Declaration manifests the founders' intention to subordinate private property to happiness, understood as public happiness. Yet the founding documents make abundantly clear that the authors understood the right to property to be an integral part of the unalienable right to liberty. The authors of the Virginia Bill of Rights the immediate ascendant to the declaration made this explicit. The first article of that charter states that all men, quote, have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Now, continuing on with taxation without representation. Because Americans understood the right to property as part and parcel of the right to liberty, they viewed taxation without representation, a violation of their economic freedom, as an attack on the whole of their freedom. The, Act, the, sorry, the Stamp Act Congress, called to protest the first of those taxes, declared that it, inseparably, it is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people that no taxes should be imposed on them, but with their own consent. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but I don't consent to taxation. Not a bit. Unfortunately, it's done without against my will. In a similar vein, Jefferson wrote, still less let it be proposed that our properties within our own territories shall be taxed or regulated by any power on earth but our own. The God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time the hand of force may destroy, but you cannot disjoin them. So they're seeing, again, it's, it's this emphasis that property and liberty are intertwined, that they, they are inseparable. In fact, American authors continuously insisted that such taxation, however small the amount on principle, was tantamount to slavery. As one patriot, Silas Downer, affirmed, if the colonists yielded to the tax power of the British Parliament, this would place them, quote, in the lowest bottom of slavery, end quote. He continued, for if they take away one penny from us against our wills, they can take it all. If they have such power over our properties that they must have a proportional power over our persons. 
And from hence it will follow that they can demand and take away our lives whensoever it shall be agreeable to their sovereign wills and pleasure. So you have individuals who fundamentally believe that property rights are even inseparable from personal rights to the point where if the government can take a single penny away from you against your will, that it is a logical conclusion that the government can take your own life against your will if it would be agreeable to their sovereign wills and pleasure. To make a claim on economic liberty of individuals or their community is to make a claim on their entire freedom. In the end, no real distinction could rightfully be made between personal and economic liberty. Accordingly, the founders understood unjust taxation as not merely a financial or economic issue, but an issue with implications for the whole of human liberty. Legislation like Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is an attack on all human liberty, not just economic, not just financial, everything. Your right to defend yourself, your right to speak freely, your right to a speedy trial, your right against unlawful searches and seizures, your right against not having to quarter troops. All of these fundamental rights are all at risk if the government can take a single penny away from you against your will. Because they recognize that without property rights, everything else dissolves. It's only a matter of time before all other rights are nullified. Now, I got a little bit left here, and this is really important because one of the major aspects, of course, in Noah Smith's article is discussing the aspects of inequality, talking about inequality, about how the pursuit of, any, of, of resolving inequality is, of course, a noble pursuit, and we should do whatever we possibly can to bring it about. So back to the article, he says, moreover, not only did the founders' understanding of equality not include all kinds of equality, such as the equality of economic condition championed by progressives, their concept of human equality necessarily excluded equality of condition. They believed that everyone had an equal right to exercise his individual ability to acquire property abilities that were by nature unequal and that the equal right to employ unequal talents would necessarily lead to economic inequality. As Alexander Hamilton stated at the constitutional convention, quote, it is certainly true that nothing like an inequality, oh, sorry, let me restart this. It is certainly true that nothing like an equality of property existed, that an inequality would exist as long as liberty existed and that it would unavoidably result from that very liberty itself. Do you understand this is an enormously powerful statement? The argument that Hamilton is making, number one, is that there has that nothing like an equality of property has ever existed. And that essentially inequality would exist as long as liberty existed. They, the, found, the constitutional framers understood very clearly something that is enormously obvious to even a grade school child, that we are all inherently unequal. Some of us are taller. Some of us are shorter. Some of us are more intelligent. Some of us are not as intelligent. Some of us are born with the talents of speaking. Some of us are born with talents for mathematics. Some of us are born with talents with singing or athletics. We are all unequal. There are things that you can do that I cannot, or maybe things that you can do much, much better than I can. And they recognized that those inequalities would naturally be used in the accumulation of property but that you would have an equal exercise to your abilities, that you would have equal rights to exercise the abilities that were given to you by God in pursuit of potentially acquiring property. But most importantly, 
that inequality would be a byproduct of liberty. In a free society, you will have inherent inequality. So for people like Noah Smith or any other progressive Democrat who is listening to the sound of my voice, in order for you to justify equality in the manner in which you seek it, you have to destroy liberty. That is essentially the goal of progressivism is the destruction of human liberty in America. And we know that because they are openly advocating for equity among people. You have to destroy liberty to create the utopia of equality, which in and of itself will, of course, only be the equality of misery. The article says not only did the founders affirm that property rights were as important as other personal rights, at times they were insistent that property rights represented the most important rights. In Federalist 10, James Madison wrote that the, pro the protection of the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is the first objective of government. In what way did the founders understand the protection of acquiring, of the acquiring faculties to be the first function of government? The author asks, contrary to the assertions of authors, it was not because they believed that acquiring property was the main or most important human activity. Men who willingly risked their, quote, lives, fortunes, and sacred honor, end quote, for the sake of their country's freedom were obviously not the type who considered the accumulation of material goods to be the end of human existence. Now, this article goes on much longer. I really strongly encourage you to read it. But I hope that this point reigns supreme. That the, the inequality that progressives claim is destroying our society, the inequality of intelligence, the inequality of wealth, is a natural byproduct of human liberty. Because we are all while created equal, meaning we are equal before the law and we are equal with respect to being able to exercise our rights, we are not created equal from a standpoint of natural ability and that we would use our natural ability that we all have the equal opportunity and the equal right to exercise our own God-given abilities potentially in the accumulation of property. And that any society which seeks to essentially create equality will do so to the detriment and destruction of human liberty. That is essentially what is being attacked right now as we approach the 2020 elections. The Democrats are openly advocating for the eradication of American liberty in pursuit of a failed, flawed, and ultimately destructive utopia of equality, which would no doubt result in some form of socialism, which has been the end result of killing a, over 100 million people in the 20th century. It's sickening, it's disgusting, it's frightening. And the fact that these proposals are starting to gain any kind of ground or traction in America, I, I, don't, I don't feel like there's even words really to describe how, how regrettable something like this would be if it was able to take hold. This, this would not result in an increased prosperity. The government wastes an enormous amount of money. And yet we're supposed to believe that somehow the federal government will be more efficient, more benevolent, and a better caretaker of our property than we can. There's no way. Absolutely not. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is definitely a hill to die on. Figuratively, and I don't know, maybe literally too. If we lose our fundamental rights to property, everything else is forfeit. All of your other personal rights are forfeit. The fact of the matter is, is that the founders and framers of this country believed strongly that even our current existing taxation system is proof that the federal government can take our own lives 
if it's so desired. Under the basis that it can already deprive us of our property, what other liberty is is more protected than that? Which one is more central than that? None. So certainly something to think about as we enter this next election season and something to think about when you have friends, relatives, or acquaintances, or random strangers on the internet that are trying to tell you that we all need to seek equality of wealth. You do so at your own peril. You do so at the destruction of your own human liberty. You essentially slit your own throat as you help yourself to the contents of somebody else's pocket. Nothing could be farther from the basis of the American culture or the foundational principles that this country was created upon. Nothing. Which is why it's so frightening, so repulsive, and ultimately so angry. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to me today and taking the time out of your day to peruse this podcast. It is greatly appreciated. Your time is the only asset that we do not get more of, no matter how efficiently or inefficiently we use it. So thank you once again, and I look forward to speaking to you next week.